But I think it is possible to hold both, to have accountability, to have safety, and to also see people as human beings deserving of a certain basic level of respect and, you know, and just humanity. This is the Anatomy of a Jewish Leader, a show of meaningful conversations with Jewish leaders that delves not only into their minds, but into their hearts. I'm Jonathan Frieden, and that voice that you heard in the beginning was Keshet Star, the CEO of the Organization for the Resolution of Aguno, also known as ORA, which seeks to eliminate abuse from the Jewish divorce process. I had such an incredible time interviewing Keshet. I mean, she presents not only such insightful ideas into what it means to be a Jewish leader, but also really just what it means to be a human. Without further ado, here is our talk. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's like really an honor to be able to have you and to have the time to talk and hear about your life and experience. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Okay. So one thing that I just want to get out early on is I feel like I get a lot of like, it's not flack, but it's something that comes up all the time. People joke with me that I'm from the middle of nowhere because I live in Cincinnati, <laughs> but you grew up in Hawaii. Exactly. I joke that I'm very, very out of town, but yes. Yeah. Like Hawaii. what brought your family to Hawaii? So it's funny, my dad is an academic and he got invited to teach a summer semester there. So figured why not and ended up loving it. And we ended up living there for eight years. But it's definitely a funny childhood in retrospect. My <laughs> husband and I were making vacation plans once and he said, oh, we should swim with dolphins. And I was like, but don't you feel like you did that on a lot of field trips? Like, because <laughs> yeah, that's, that's how that. everyone grew up. <laughs> right. Like you would take your turn with the dolphin and then it's the next kid's turn. So, you know, it's definitely. That's definitely an unusual starting place. That is so funny. Do you feel like that that like impacted your life in terms of just like in general, like how you interact with people, like it based on like the culture that you grew up with there? Definitely. I mean, I think I grew up kind of toggling back and forth between Hawaii and summers in Brooklyn, visiting my grandparents. Oh, those are similar. And so, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I really kind of I don't know. I feel like I grew up inhabiting these very different worlds. And even in Hawaii, I was part of, you know, Hebrew school, but then I went to a public school. So I was very used to kind of being in spaces where I was really different than everyone else around me. And I think that probably did and does inform a lot of how I think about things. Although I probably wasn't conscious at the time, but I remember doing a lot of explaining even as a really little kid to lots of people about lots of things. For sure. Yeah. Like, do you think that, like, I, I could totally imagine how that might also impact how you end up relating to people and like being able to relate to people from different backgrounds, just because you've probably experienced people from such different backgrounds. Um, Definitely. Cool. Okay. Yeah. So then you moved to Ohio, right? A fellow Ohioan. Where were you in Ohio? Exactly. By the way? Columbus. Okay. So that's like an hour away from Cincinnati. Not too bad. Yeah. I actually, this was before we had GPS and cell phones, but my friends and I once tried to go to Lake Erie and ended up in Cincinnati. So there was obviously a directional problem there, but a uh, good place and kosher donuts from what uh, I remember. And that's yeah. what I was all about. And quality, still quality kosher bagels also very, very underrated. Exactly. Um, yeah. Okay, cool. So then you went to University of Michigan, you majored in English, and then in 2007, you found your way to U University of Pennsylvania's law school. First of all, super impressive and awesome. Did you like always know that you wanted to go into law? No, I was an English major that would happily read books every day for the rest of my life if someone paid me to do that. But um, they for the most part, don't. So <laughs> I had to figure something else out. And I actually really debated an academic career in English literature, but ended up deciding on law school and also loved the idea of something intellectually stimulating, but with practical impact. Not that academics and English literature don't have practical <laughs> impact because they do, but really wanting something where I was working on, you know, real people, live situations, but also intellectually interesting and challenging. For sure. So did you always know that you wanted to go into advocacy work or was it going to be like law in general? And then it kind of fell into that. So what made me interested in going to law school was that I did a very random internship in high school in the juvenile court system in Columbus. Fascinating. And 
Right. I don't even know how I got placed there. My Jewish day school was like, all right, you can do this for two weeks. But um, it was really incredible and just eye opening. And so I really went to law school wanting to do something advocacy related. Once I was there, I did play around with big law and would I want to do the firm route. In the end, that was both not for me and the economy collapsed soon after I started law school. Oh, so the world yeah. kind of decided that for me. But um, I really was pretty focused on the advocacy throughout. And most of the classes I took were, you know, human rights and, you know, family law and just related to different issues that interested me that were more public sector based. For sure. Yeah, that's interesting. So I was going to ask, like, how did you go about making that decision between like the classic corporate high paying job versus advocacy? But I guess also if the economy crashed, that's, I guess, helpful to kind of steer that choice to and, a degree. Right. And I really feel that, you know, the 2008 recession messed a lot of people over, but I think it really helped me in the end <laughs> is that I think if not for that, I probably would have gone into big law. It was definitely the easiest path in the school I was at. And I think I really would not have been happy. So I feel lucky that I was kind of forced out of the more predictable path and, you know, had to choose something different because I think I'm, I'm much happier day to day than I would have been. For sure. So, okay. So I know there's a really funny story about how you got your first like internship within like the, like advocacy for women world, uh, which is that like you've kind of showed up, like you, you didn't win the lottery to get the interview because apparently there's some sort of lottery. And then they called you and you happened to have been in the building wearing a suit. Um, first of all, that's hilarious that that's kind of how it worked out. Um, but did you like, did you have any personal reason or connection to like why you're focusing on women's issues in the Jewish community? Or was it more of just like, oh, you happen to have gotten this really cool internship and then it kind of flowed from there? Right. So it was totally random in that I was interested in child advocacy. I had done an internship in college with an advocacy organization, and I basically prepared pamphlets about other issues that impact families that are in the foster care system. And one of them was domestic violence. And I was very interested in that. So I thought, you know, one all summer, maybe I'll learn a little more about this domestic abuse thing. And I happened to, as you said, totally randomly was in the law school in a suit. Someone canceled an interview last minute. And as I'm meeting with this agency, they mentioned that they had just gotten this grant to work on domestic abuse in the Orthodox community. And it had really never crossed my mind that there was abuse in the Orthodox community. I just didn't really think twice about it. But I've always been really fascinated by religion, I think, including my own. And so the idea of like putting together the religion and the abuse pieces was intellectually, I think, immediately really interesting, really exciting. And um, and from there, after that internship, that's really what I wanted to do. But I went in just kind of exploring and not even knowing this was a thing, let alone that it was going to be my thing and something I would really care about. For sure. And that's also, I guess, I guess to me growing up more in, in I mean, in the last couple of years, it, it's definitely like domestic abuse is definitely something which is more spoken about in the Jewish community, but it's kind of, and I, I'm sure to a degree that's, that's thanks to Ora and I guess when you're working with uh, organizations like Sarah's Voice, but yeah, it's kind of crazy that for a while that was kind of never even spoken about. And like, you didn't even know that that was a thing until you really ended up in it. Um, wow. Okay. Absolutely. So you were with, so you're with, <laughs> you're with Sarah's voice for a while and then you end up at Aura. Um, for those who don't know, Aura uh, addresses domestic abuse in the Jewish world, specifically in the divorce process. Um, you start off as the director of advocacy and legal strategy. Six years later, you become the managing director. Three years after that, you're the CEO. What has the experience been like for you being a woman in a leadership position in the Jewish community that interacts with not only law and the secular knowledge, but I'm sure you also at points have to interact with halacha as well? It's definitely interesting. And when I started at Ora, I was a case advocate. So I worked on Agunah cases. I spoke to get refusers. I spoke to Bate Din or religious courts rabbis. That's what I did all day. I did find that being a lawyer, I joked that being a lawyer and being a woman kind of balanced each other out. But I felt <laughs> like having, you know, the degree gave me a a box to put me in, which I think made it easier sometimes for someone to communicate with me. And, um, and I think there's an element sometimes where you go places and you're the only woman in the room and it always feels a little weird, but you 
have to just kind of get past that, that I think if I was uncomfortable in situations like that, it wouldn't work. I even had one moment where I was at a based-in hearing, the hearing moved location at the last minute, and it was me and the three Dianim on the based-in in the car going from A to B, like <laughs> eating snacks in the car, you know? And so you have these moments where it's like one of these things is not like the other, but if you're willing to kind of embrace that discomfort, it really can work, but the discomfort's there. And I really also try to use that as an empathy experience to think about what it feels like for a woman whose case is on deck to be walking into a beaten and be the only woman in the room. And if that feels weird sometimes as a professional, what does that feel like as a party to a case? So I try to use it in that sense, but um, it can definitely be different. And I think you have to be also okay with making other people uncomfortable sometimes, not in a all the time, all day, but that it might be the first time they've interacted with a woman in this kind of context. And that's okay. For sure. Fascinating. I, I, two of the things that stood out to me, which are so interesting are one, like the empathy piece of being able to relate to other people that are going through that. And the other of like the confidence that like, yeah, if you come in really confident and being okay with sometimes making other people uncomfortable, like that's okay too. Um, wow. Fascinating. Do you, have you ever like ended up butting heads with any other people, whether in leadership or the rabbinate or anything? Like, what was that like? It's a good question. I've definitely been in very intense and heated situations. I've also been in situations where we just feel differently. I think that I'm pretty good at building consensus among people. I think everyone's got their skill sets and people might think of me as more militant and it's not that I, I can't be like that, but I think I'm pretty good at finding common ground with someone. So even if there's someone that I have a difficult relationship with, if I need to have a good relationship with them in order to be effective on our cases, then I will do what I need to do to build a good relationship, even if there's some, you know, <laughs> finagling involved in that. So I really do believe in the strength of relationships in the long term. And that also, if the relationships are strong, it gives you a stronger leg to land on, to stand on if you need to say, you know, I really don't think this is right. Or just explain this to me. I'm not understanding why this situation is being handled the way it is. Fill me in. Let's talk about it. And kind of opening things in that way. For sure. Yeah. And I, I guess related to that, like, I'm so curious also, what's it like working and being in some sort of leadership role very much within your own community a lot of the time? It is really hard sometimes. I will say the Jewish world is very small. We have, you know, two degrees of separation. And um, one thing that I've had to accept that on some days I do a better job accepting than others is that when you work on really high conflict divorces in a tiny community that you also live in, some people are just not going to like you. And that's just how it's going to be. And sometimes you walk into a room and it's like, don't tell so-and-so what your job is and <laughs> or your name, you know, and that's how it is. And so I try to be comfortable with that and to remind myself that at the end of the day, my job, I think at core is to be an advocate. And if I'm saying something that everyone agrees with, then I might as well go home. There's no point to that. So if I'm, if there was any meaning to the advocacy, there has to be another side. There has to be people who disagree. There has to be pushback. And if any, anyway, if you have a hard day, Winston Churchill has a good quote about, you know, bring it's it. something like you have enemies. Good. That means that you stood up for something. And sometimes we need that reminder that it, I, it's always been very important to me to get along with people. But there is sometimes a higher purpose beyond that, that you just have to be OK with the fact that it is going to be uncomfortable with person A or person B, but it's worth it because there's a bigger value to what you're doing. For sure. I think that that's so powerful that like sometimes you have to be able to stand up. Were you, are you naturally able to be confrontational or was that like very much learned? Because like, I know some people like really had to work on it. I am not naturally confrontational at all. Like really? you stole my pencil. You want to keep it, whatever, <laughs> like not worth it to me. That is my personality. And um, in some ways it's a, great irony that I ended up in the job that I'm in. But I try to tell myself that I think it does mean that if I take someone to the mat, you know, it's really 
conflict Lashave Shemayim. And it's really conflict because I think that conflict needs to happen. I don't enjoy fighting with people. I don't enjoy telling them they're doing the wrong thing. I don't enjoy any of that. So if I do it, it's because I really feel that it's necessary to correct an injustice and not because I'm getting an excitement out of it. And I went to law school. So I know there are many, many people who deeply enjoy fighting all day long <laughs> and will happily do that. But I am not one of them. I'm so, okay. So I'm so curious. Do you, are you also willing to be confrontational slash stand up for yourself or like, are you much more willing to do it for other people? Much more for other people, but I have had to learn to do it for myself and I have to push myself, but I think it's really rewarding because one thing I've also seen, I've been doing this work. I was first exposed to this type of work in that first internship, probably Okay, now I'm doing math in my head, but probably like 13, 14 years ago, it's been a long time. And I've seen a lot of people burn out in this field. And so one thing that I've always been very careful about is to have basic boundaries, to stand up for myself when a boundary is crossed, because otherwise you might as well start polishing your resume. Like, I think if you can't do that, then you really can't sustain the stress level of this kind of work and the stress level of leadership in general for a long time. For sure. Okay, so uh, of course, one of the one of the big things that you're you're doing is on the one hand, of course, you have to like present the best legal counsel, and especially when you're more of on the legal side. Now you're the CEO, so I'm not sure exactly how that role has shifted. But of course, Aura Aura as a whole really is focusing on presenting the best legal counsel um, and putting women in the best position that they could be in. But at the same time, I'm sure that so much of your role. It's also just being like an emotional support. Um, and I'm really curious, like, how do you balance those two things and do those ever go against each other? Like, is there ever a time when the legal support is not necessarily what's emotionally the best for the for the woman who's involved? It's a really thoughtful question. And on the legal side, we kind of stay in this in-between area where we don't represent anyone. We don't provide legal advice, just legal information, because we really position ourselves as focusing on the get. Plus, I think what we offer, which you can't go and get so easily elsewhere, is advice that really incorporates both the religious and civil systems. And that gives you an, an integrated holistic strategy, as opposed to five people telling you five things. And if you do all five at the same time, it's going to be a disaster. And so that's something that we offer. There is no question that managing the emotional side of the work and the, you know, strategic side of the work is really, really difficult. One of the nice things about what we do at Aura is that because we're not for profit, we don't charge for our time. I mean, our time costs money because everything costs money, but we don't charge the people who use our services. It allows us to have more bandwidth where people feel like they can talk to us about their emotional experience in a way that you your lawyer either doesn't have time and also probably doesn't have the training and the interest to listen to the emotional experience. And what the way that we think about it, many of the people who come to us are survivors of abuse. They've been let down by many, many people in their lives. And so we really try to sort of draw this fine line by encouraging people and supporting people, but also being honest with them. Telling someone something that's exactly what they want to hear and not accurate is not helpful. And so we have a lot of difficult conversations and I will usually say straight out, I know this is so hard to hear, but I also know that you're hearing a lot of things from a lot of people. And I want you to know that we're committed to telling you the truth as we see it and as we understand it. And even if that's a hard truth, I'd rather you hear that now and can make a decision with your eyes open than tell you something that's going to make for an easier conversation today, but a less advantageous position that you're in in six months. And so really trying to be open about that with people. And make space for what it's like to go through this on a psychological level as well as a practical one. For sure. And I think that also like that point you're bringing up, I think that like the balance between on the one hand being really emotionally like intuitive and supporting, but on the other hand, like being really honest and how sometimes being really honest is also really important in the long run. Uh, I think that's an incredible point. Um, 
a, a mentor of mine personally, Jonathan Schwab, who used to be the director of housing at YU, just now uh, working for Tikva. He always used to like tell me and a couple of my peers, like he would say, he always had the same line to us. He always said that there's like, he used this metaphor of sometimes that it's important. Like if you're on the plane uh, and like, you know, it's the loss of cabin pressure, you always have to put on your own oxygen mask first before helping other people. Did you ever feel like there were times where you kind of had to put on your own oxygen mask before you were able to really help any anyone else? I definitely feel that. I think that in moments, again, if I feel, I completely understand that people who call us are, no one's calling ORED to tell us what a great day they're having. So we understand <laughs> that people are under stress and we get it. If it crosses a line, someone's calling you names on the phone, something like that, I will just be very clear and say, you know, I really want to talk to you. It doesn't seem like we're in the best place to have this conversation right now. And I'll literally say like, I'm going to count to three. And if we can redirect amazing. And if we can't, I'm going to call you back tomorrow. And wow. so I'm pretty careful about those boundaries. If I feel like it's crossing to a point where it's really not productive, but I guess I'll say more broadly, I think ironically, I have, you know, a demanding job and responsibilities at home. But I honestly probably spend more time taking care of myself than most people I know. And I you. think it's partly because I need it. But I, I really do. There have been, I mean, pre-COVID, there would be many times I would be in a coffee shop reading a novel, even if it's for 15 minutes before I pick up my kids. And people would come up to me like I was in the zoo and be like, are you by yourself reading a book like and drinking coffee? And for me, I, it's always been very important to have that kind of time and space to fill up because otherwise I'm not patient enough with the people that we help with the rest of the staff, with partner agencies, with all the people involved. So I really need that like filling up time. Get that yeah, that's awesome that you're sitting in your car at Starbucks drive-in. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Was that learned or like was that like where like you just like you learned that you had to do this or you're kind of naturally like, all right, I know I need to take care of myself. I think I learned it. I okay. think I mean, I will say I started working full time, had a baby and bought a house within about 7 months of each other. Wow. And so that was a lot. And I was super overwhelmed for a while. And um, and I really had to learn how to kind of make it work. And part of it was getting my type A self to relax about a lot of things. And part of it was also realizing that I have to be intentional about that time and that it doesn't even have to be that much time, but taking 15 minutes doing something that you actually really like, as opposed to scrolling your phone is sometimes all that you need. And you can go right back to what you were doing with so much more energy and enthusiasm. For sure. Okay. Swift switching gears a little, a little bit. Um, I, I'll tell you one of the questions I was most excited to, to ask you um, when I, when you agreed to do this interview is it's, it might sound a little bit funny, but I, I'm so interested in the sense because you're always fighting for to try to help um, women and especially those who are victims of, of abuse in some way and survivors of abuse. I'm really curious how you view the abusers, um, especially as someone who, like you, I'm sure is clearly incredibly emotionally intelligent uh, and intuitive. Like, how do you view them? It's such a good question. And I actually feel really strongly about viewing them as people as opposed to monsters, you know, or kind of caricatures. A, I think that any form of advocacy that involves dehumanizing the other side is sort of a risky business that we're all human beings. And I think when we kind of lose sight of that, it isn't helpful. But also I think it's not effective. You know, people are complicated and you really want to understand the complicated person on the other side. One thing, and at this point in my role, I don't spend a lot of time speaking to get refusers. So it happens here and there, but that's not my day to day. Um, for some time it was, but when it was a lot of, and again, for our case advocates now, a lot of what we do is really try to understand the person who's not giving a get on a deeper level and really build rapport with them. A, it might lead to a get, and even if it doesn't lead to a get, we know them better, so then we're more effective. But it's always an interesting process. You, 
are obviously are doing this work because you care about Agunot, and yet you need to find a way to talk to a get refuser for three hours and joke around and laugh and find points of connection. So I think finding a way to hold both that someone can have good qualities and be doing something really wrong um, and trying to keep both in your mind and also recognizing that a lot of abuse is learned behavior. Many abusers grew up in situations where this is what they saw, that it, it doesn't it doesn't excuse the behavior, but I think it can help you relate to the person as a human being in the way that you need to, to really be successful and effective. Wow. Yeah. No, that, that absolutely makes sense. Um, and, and I'm sure to a lot of people, like it, they would naturally just view people like that as monsters, but that totally makes sense that it's really important to see them as people and to connect them. I'm so curious, like, what's that like when you're having conversations with them and you're joking around but at the same time, you kind of know that like there's a point that you're trying to get at. Like, what's that like interacting with them? It's different for everyone and it's unexpected. So, you know, sometimes you kind of plan in your head what you're going to say and you end up in a totally different situation. And of course, you have people with different psychological diagnoses and, you know, you're dealing with a, a really big range of people. But I think for the most part, I try to connect with the pain that the person is experiencing, which is real. I might feel 100% that they're doing the absolute worst thing they can do with that pain, but I can still connect with the fact that that pain is there. And what I really try to do as well, and this is why I think you have to have some belief in the humanity on the other side, a conversation with the get refuser is always focused on the future, that you're trying to say, let's sort of like shift the viewpoint here. We're focused so deeply in this moment, in this case, in this conflict, but where do you want your life to be in five years, in 10 years? And this sounds dramatic, but when you die and you talk to God about how you handled this really difficult situation that you went through, what do you want to say? And trying to get people to think about the experience in a way that's sort of future focused and broader and trying to get them to believe that even though they feel so stuck right now, if they give the get which is sort of the first step in that spiritual separation and really allowing them to move on that you can have a life and a future and other things that come after this. Do you, it sounds like a lot of that is that like you believe that, or you're conveying to them that you believe that they're in, in an idea of like redemption, quote unquote. Um, do, do you like really believe that they can truly like, I, I don't like using the word repent, but to really like make themselves a better person moving forward and can kind of totally get past whatever they've done? It's such a hard question because I think when you look at Teshuva, we believe in the idea that a person can always make changes, that it's never too late. You look at statistics on, you know, recidivism and domestic abuse and that the numbers aren't promising. It's very difficult for people in abusive patterns to have a new relationship in a different pattern. But I do really believe that at core, we are sometimes in situations where we're faced with really difficult decisions and we can choose A and we can choose B. I happen to believe that get refusal is not actually super helpful for the get refuser, even though it can be a great point of leverage, even though it is a really powerful mechanism. I think that ultimately it kind of corrupts the situation. And I, I don't think it helps people in the end. But even if they think it does, or even if in that particular situation, you can make the case that it's helpful. I think there is a value in knowing that you chose to do the right thing, even when it was hard. And to do the wrong thing for three years or five years or six years, and then do the right thing, I think that does take a certain amount of courage and strength to kind of shift gears. I think that changing your direction is very difficult. So I do feel that there are people who can do that. Right. Yeah. And, and I guess that it's not really a dichotomy, but that balance between on the one hand, believing, especially as Jews, that anyone can kind of work on themselves and become better, but also just recognizing from a statistical standpoint that like, yeah, a lot of the time that's really just not the case. Um, and trying to like balance that out is, I'm sure, quite uh, a challenge. Um, and I guess a lot of these conversations that are coming up are very much based along the lines of empathy and how to be empathetic. Um, I think I guess, also to 
Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, no, no, please, please. I was just going to say to make sort of an analogy, if you think about, you know, the criminal justice system, right? They're almost like two different things. What should the sentence be for this person? What does public safety require? But then also the element of seeing each person in that system as a human being. And I think you can hold both. I don't think it's easy, but I think it is possible to hold both, to have accountability, to have safety, and to also see people as human beings deserving of a certain basic level of respect and, you know, and just humanity. Absolutely. And so I guess tying into that, so for that, for from your perspective, so let's say you're coming in with that mentality that that's something that you want to bring to the table. Um, but how can you kind of teach your, I don't know if the right word is staff or employees at Aura that are working for you to also approach it in that way? Like, is there a way that you train them? Is there any sort of way that you can kind of help them become more emotionally sensitive and intuitive and help them have that balance also between seeing people as individuals, but also the, the sentencing or the, the being able to be more actually on top of things? It's a good question. And I think it's a challenging ongoing process. I think the first time you're on the phone with someone and they're telling you how upset they are with their ex-wife and we've had, I've had many conversations with staff members over the years. How can I say, oh, I hear you. That must be really so hard when I feel like this person's doing this terrible thing. So I think it is challenging. One thing we really look for, obviously we're an advocacy organization. We love idealism, but we need nuance. And we actually test for that in our interview process. And it's emphasized throughout our onboarding and training process that there is nothing simple about the work that we do. And if you come in with too much of a black, white, right, wrong, you know, up, down kind of mentality, it doesn't end up working. That we need someone that can say the policy should be this and someone can totally break that policy and that can be the right thing for them. And I can hold both of those at the same time. So we look for that and we also try to train that and we try to really make sure that our staff have support because where I sit compared to a case advocate that is on the phone with a good note and, you know, get refusers all day, it's a different experience. So also really making sure that our staff members kind of on the front lines really have the support and the opportunity to unpack what they're experiencing is really important. For sure. What have you found is like a really good way to help support them? I think creating spaces to speak, creating spaces also for just the people who have that experience to speak, that, you know, some conversations are important for the entire staff, some less so. Um, and also, we work on a very niche issue, but there are domestic abuse advocates that have sort of some of that on the ground experience. And so really also working with other agencies, there are some great resources where our staff can speak with other staff members who are doing this front lines work in other agencies. And so much of it is similar because, again, it's not just the people on the other side. Also, the people coming to you for help are under enormous stress, might not always be the easiest people, you know, just because they're, they need your help doesn't mean that they're, you know, a super flexible, easygoing, you know, great person to work with. And so managing that stress as well is something that we all have in common and talking to other agencies about what they experience can be very validating and also give you some really good ideas if there's a policy that needs to be adjusted a little bit. For sure. Yeah. Well, it's so nice to hear that like a lot of the focus is also on making sure that the staff is supported because that makes so much sense. Um, one of the things that I found that was really interesting, but also makes so much sense and is a beautiful thing that Aura focuses on is also on prevention, right? And so like the big focus on the halachic prenup and 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 things of, of that sort. I'm curious, do you think that there, do you, do you view that there could also be like earlier prevention? Like, do you think that domestic abuse or um, whether it's in divorce or in general in the Jewish world is something that should be spoken about in schools uh, when people are younger? Like, do you think that there's a way to kind of have even, even an earlier line of prevention? Absolutely. So we go into high schools and talk about it. Um, we've not really gone younger than high school, although I'm sure we can makes find sense. a way to make it work. But, you know, I think high school makes sense. But I actually think high school is a really important stage because while people are sometimes dating, they're unlikely to be dating the partner that they are going to be marrying. And, you know, most 16 year olds are not like flipping through, you know, 
bridal magazines on the weekend. And I think it's, there's something very powerful about addressing these issues when they're theoretical, because once you're in a real relationship with a real person, everything is much more complicated. So if you can provide that education and that awareness much earlier on where it's all just a theory, I think it's actually much more effective that way. Interesting, because then if because then it'll help prevent it happening or that if it happens, they'll already kind of have the theory behind how to interact with it. I think both. So for example, there's a lot of conversation now in the, you know, when you're thinking about sexual abuse in institutions, for example, that it's critical for an organization to have a policy in place before a violation happens. Because if it's, you know, Rick, the soccer coach, everyone loves Rick, the soccer coach, he couldn't have done anything wrong. It's almost impossible in the moment for us to always do the right thing. So if we have the policy before we have the problem, then we're a lot more likely to have a good outcome because there is a framework. We've heard about this before. And I think when it comes to the prenup, talking about it in the context of a relationship, if one of you is familiar with it, one of you is not, that can be stressful. So being able to get that information earlier and for everyone to get that information earlier, I think it really depersonalizes it and is helpful. And of course, in an ideal world, we get to people four or five times before they're married. So they know all about it and they're sick of hearing it. But if we're only going to get to them a couple of times, there really is a value in getting there early. Yeah, I I think that that's so interesting. Because I guess when I hear that about, let's say, a policy with a school of sexual abuse, I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Have the policies already set. Um, But that's so interesting. And it makes so much sense also to almost have like, on an individualistic level, like internal policies set of like, for myself, if this ever ends up happening to me, how am I going to interact with that? Like on a very personal level, like not this global policy. I think that's such an interesting idea that I've never really thought of before. So thank you for that. Right. Uh, so interesting. Um, okay. So now I'd love to just, if God forbid anyone who's listening to this now is either um someone who is in an unhealthy relationship or knows of someone who's in an unhealthy relationship, what would you want to say to them? What would you want them to know? The main thing I would want them to know is to pause and just get more information. And I think that sometimes if you're in a relationship and something doesn't feel right, it can feel very global. You know, do I leave or do I stay? And what if I never find someone else? And one thing that we do at ORF for people who call us in our helpline, our helpline is called One Step Forward because we really like to break it down into manageable steps. So I think that if someone is feeling a sense of something not being right, let's figure out what the best single next step is that you don't have to go, you know, 50 million steps at once and you don't have to decide tonight if you're going to continue in the relationship or not. What we, I think what we have seen is that a marriage that is not between two healthy people is a really bad and sad and miserable place to be. And so as scary as it is to contemplate that maybe this relationship isn't so healthy or isn't so strong, it's better to contemplate that and deal with it than end up going into a situation that is a problem. And there are some couples who are not necessarily dealing with an abusive situation, but they might just need some support. They might not have the communication skills to really start a relationship successfully and going to a therapist a few times can make all the difference. So to really encourage people to get the support they need and to not see marriage as the magical unicorn band-aid that's gonna fix everything and make everything amazing because it's not, you know, it's it's a new set of challenges that you get to go through together, but you need a healthy foundation in order to do that well. And I think with the friend, it's very challenging because we cannot make other people do things that they don't want to do. And that's a hard reality. And I've dealt with that personally, in addition to my professional life, seeing friends sometimes go into relationships that I'm cringing at, you know, I think that there's a lot of value in having a conversation and saying, this is what I'm noticing. What do you think? Always trying to put the person back in the driver's seat. But I'm noticing that since you guys started dating, you seem a lot more anxious about things, or I'm noticing, you know, this element or that element. What do you think? And the bottom line should be that 
whatever you decide to do, I love you and I'm here for you and I'm on your team. And sometimes the person might go ahead and get married anyway and be in a bad situation and come to you to talk to you about it. And that might be 10 years later. But if the relationship is there and the support is there, it allows you to to still be there for them. But I do think it's important to say something that very often, you know, an abusive situation will really come to light and explode. And all these people will come out of the woodwork. Oh, I knew something wasn't right. Oh, yeah, they always seem so weird together. Oh, I noticed this. I noticed that. And if we can share those things, it doesn't guarantee a change, but it really can make an impact. For sure. I think there were so many like really powerful nuggets in that answer. I mean, from the beginning, just the idea of also taking the manageable steps I like and the immediate steps I think is so powerful because I know that's say for people who are like me who will jump to 15 things in the future and being like take it easy what's the next thing to do um, and then also from the friend side like having recognizing that other people are gonna make their own decisions and just obviously bringing it to light but supporting them and letting allowing them for to to make those decisions for themselves um, I think is like a really really great point as well um, okay, so one of the when I was I was looking into you online, I was doing all the research. It was, by the way, a fantastic time. One of the things that I came <laughs> across, which I thought was incredible and I loved and I really enjoyed, is you wrote a blog for like five years online. I know you haven't. It seems like you haven't written much since like 2015. Um, but you talked about first from scrapbooking to like a million other things. Um, but one of the things that you talked about, which like again, I don't have kids yet, but I could definitely really understand how this would come up is the guilt of working, but then also sometimes missing some really important time with your kids. And I'm curious, like, how did you interact with that guilt? And in general, how do you find that balance between really focusing on community and helping others and also really focusing on like your family? Such a good question. And it's such a hard thing because it's so individual. I find, so I have three kids now, and I feel like it is a thousand times easier to have three kids than to have one, even though like my husband reminds me often that like statistically one of them will be in a bad phase at any given moment, <laughs> and it's true. But I think in the beginning, there's so, you're being given this like perfect tiny little soul and you just don't want to mess them up. And all the decisions feel so big. Will I work or will I stay at home? Will I do this or will I do that? Will I, you know, nurse or bottle feed and everything feels life and death. And I think over time you realize that you are an imperfect parent and that they are going to have an imperfect childhood, which in the end is a good thing because they will be unprepared for life if they're used to only being treated perfectly all the time. Um, or so I tell myself when I give them chicken nuggets <laughs> for dinner every night. Um, but there's also an element where I think you kind of over time make peace with the decisions that you've made. And that's an area where it's not that I don't ever struggle, but I definitely don't struggle, I think, as much as I used to, because I think I've come to terms with the fact that I don't think I would be the best stay-at-home mom. I love my kids dearly, but um, I don't think it would work so well with my personality. And at the end of the day, if I happen to have fallen in love with a career that had a ton of jobs that ended at three o'clock and I could be in the carpool line at 3.30, great, but I didn't. And I fell in love with a job and a career that doesn't really work that way. And that comes with certain sacrifices. I even just the other day had a twinge that I didn't sign up my son for baseball because it's at three o'clock every day. And it also seems kind of torturous, but you know, so it's not that I, that it's totally over, but um, I think over time I've gotten better at just kind of accepting that this, this is really sort of what works for me and that if it works for me, it probably works for them. And that if something's not working, I'll notice it and tweak it. So I've had stages where I had a lot more backup childcare and babysitters picking them up. And I could see that it, it wasn't working so well after a while that it was a little unsettling. So I feel like if I notice that something's not working out, I readjust. And I try to always remind myself that like you can always figure things out, you know, whatever needs to be done. If my son really, really wanted to do baseball, I would figure out a way. I don't know what that solution would be right now, but I would come up with something. And so 
Yeah. So I don't know. So I think it's a balancing act and not always a perfect one. But if you're happy with what you're doing, I'd rather be really happy with what I'm doing and do it till, you know, 530, than not be that excited about what I'm doing and be done at three. So for sure. And not that those are the only two options, but if that's how it's working out with my own choices and my own career, then I'll take it and I'll I'll be happy that I get to be with my kids in the evening and go to work in the morning and do something that I love and enjoy. For sure. And yeah, it also sounds a lot like it's really important also for how you parent as a kid to make sure that you also are like really happy and are doing what you enjoy. And I'm sure that that's for, I guess, people who aren't parents yet or are early on in parenthood. That's probably like really nice and important to hear that, you know, that it's, you don't need to feel guilty about having your own life also. Um, One of the other things that you wrote about in your blog, uh, which I found really powerful was in general, the discussion around infertility uh, and the struggles with that. So I know now people are, especially in the Jewish world, are becoming slightly more comfortable discussing it. But I know years ago, people in general were really uncomfortable talking about that. What kind of pushed you to write about it in a public forum? So I am, I really process things by writing. I've been writing in some form pretty much my whole life. So I feel like I stopped writing the blog when I started writing other things. Like, you know, like as the writing shifted, it moved from one direction to another. So part of it, I think, is my own processing of the experience and writing being a powerful way to do that. But I also find that whenever you go through something miserable and infertility, you know, qualifies, hearing a story of someone else who is going through it or has been through it is so validating that like I'm not the only one because you feel like you're the only one, even though actually one in eight couples around the world go through infertility. It's like a lot of people, but you really feel like you're the only person doing it. And so I think that having the stories out there is really meaningful. I think most people find it too exposing to kind of share those stories, but I'm pretty open by nature. So I always felt like if I'm okay sharing those stories and the stories are meaningful, then then for me, those two go together well, that I feel like I'm doing something that feels okay for me, that doesn't feel too vulnerable. And yet I'm also helping someone else. And for me, it's something that's really, I think, helped me make meaning out of a difficult situation that because I'm open about it, I've been able to support many, many other people going through it. And anything from, you know, what's IVF like to, you know, what was your reaction to this drug to what doctor to use? And so it's been meaningful for me to feel that when I've struggled, that I've been able to do something good with that. For sure. I, yeah. I think that that's such a beautiful and powerful thing that you're kind of creating um, a place for other people to not feel alone in that experience. And I think that that's so, so incredible. Um, kind of along those lines of family in general and Judaism, Judaism is such a family oriented religion. It is unbelievable and it is beautiful and it is great um but for people who whether they're struggling with infertility or whether they're you know divorcees or whatever it is like that could be i could imagine and see how that could be a really isolating and lonely experience um and i'm curious if you have any ideas and like how might we as as a religion as a community best incorporate people like that and best include people like that who might naturally not have those families? Such a powerful question. And I think I think part of it is pushing ourselves. It is always easiest to invite Shabbos guests who are just like you. Like it just is, you know, if you have a three-year-old girl and a one-year-old boy, it's going to be easier to invite the family. That's also two married parents and a three-year-old girl and a one-year-old boy. Um, and so to recognize that our instinct often is going to be to just engage with the people that are just like us. But that when we think about what we're supposed to do and be as a community, I feel like any community can accommodate the mainstream, right? It's when there's challenges, when someone doesn't fit the mold, when someone you know, might be again married with kids, but might struggle socially or any number of things, that it's how you handle the margins that really defines who you are as a community. And so I think being willing to push ourselves in who we invite, I mean, God willing, we should be able to invite anyone (laughs) at some point, like literally anyone at all. Um, 
exactly. Um, but I think pushing ourselves a little bit as to who we invite and opening that box and also just having a sense of awareness that people worry about, well, I don't want to have to walk on eggshells. I don't want to have to, you know, monitor everything I say. And I think the tough reality is that I don't think Judaism really agrees with that approach. <laughs> I think that, you know, the Torah really requires us to be sensitive to not hurt people with our words and that we have a filter. Anyone who has raised a toddler can attest to the fact that we're not born with the filter and we spend <laughs> a lot of time trying to teach the filter, you know? Um, so to just sometimes at a Shabbos table, like look around the table and think about what you're discussing and who's included. I remember being at a Shabbos meal. I was single. I was there with a friend who was single. And the discussion around the table was literally everyone went around and shared the weirdest wedding gift they had gotten. And it was really funny. And it, I was in a relationship at the time. So I was like, oh, whatever doesn't bother me. This is entertaining. Um, but for my friend who wasn't, it was painful. And I've been around Shabbos tables where people... I remember going to a Shabbos meal where people were discussing strollers for two hours and A, I was going through infertility and B, strollers are like not that interesting unless you're buying one. And it was a hard experience and no one meant anything by it. But I try to like when I'm hosting to just do a quick check, like what are we talking about? who's here? Can they contribute? And if they can't, I don't have to like ring the fire alarm, but we can just naturally segue into something else as opposed to staying on this for, you know, three hours that it doesn't have to be so intense, but just having that awareness to who's here, are they included? It, it's the little, little thing, but it can make a real difference. Yeah. The thing that like jumps out from that is like awareness and intentionality. And like, I feel like it's very common. I could speak for myself, but I'm sure it's for other people. It's very common to just like be in a conversation or be hanging out with people and not really recognize what's going on, what's the conversation, but sometimes being able to take that step back and be like, hey, by the way, what's going on right now? Um, okay, I right. to wrap up, I always like to end with the, with the same question, just as a nice, as a night to end off on a very clear point. Um, this conversation was fascinating. I feel that I learned so much. Um, what do you think it means to lead? I love that question. I think it means to serve. You might be in the public eye, but it involves, I think, a lot of giving and a lot of being willing to, to listen to other people who might feel differently than you do. Um, and that it's really a, a service role, you know, to serve your staff, your constituents, the people counting on you to do your job well. And um, and I think a lot of it is showing up just kind of like there are good times and there are really hard times. And sometimes you're super inspired and energized and sometimes you're totally not. And to kind of show up and go through the motions when you need to. Um, and trust that if you keep showing up, that same energy that brought that was there in the first place will come back and will allow you to keep going and to make it not about you. That's a really long answer, but I think it's true. If you made it this far, thank you so much for listening. To stay up to date, please follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Anatomy of a Jewish Leader. And if you're really feeling generous, leave us a review on iTunes. It's incredibly helpful. Uh, if you have inquiries or if you'd be interested in sponsoring a podcast, you can reach out at aoajlpodcast at gmail.com. Once again, thank you so much for listening. Until next time.